This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What does it mean to be a two-time World Cup winning coach? There's only one woman who can answer that question, and that's Jill Ellis. Jill was at the helm for the United States Women's National Team's 2015 and 2019 World Cup title runs. I'm Jeff Kasouf, founder of The Equalizer, and this is Kicking Back, the podcast where I sit down with players, coaches, and just about anybody from the women's soccer community to discuss everything from the here and now to their legendary careers and the moments which define them. This podcast is about getting to know these personalities better and going inside those important events. Joining me for this first podcast is Jill Ellis. She and I spoke for over an hour about a wide range of soccer topics, including decisions she had to make during her tenure as U.S. coach. In this podcast, you get to go inside the mind of Jill Ellis, the coach, the tactician, and the Manchester United fan. We dive into the necessary lineup changes she made at the 2015 World Cup, changing shape mid-game against France in the 2019 quarterfinal in Paris, and the preparation which went into that moment, even look back at that attempt to play a three-back coming out of the 2016 Olympic failure. If you're a coach or a total soccer nerd, you're going to love this conversation. If you're a U.S. Women's National Team fan, you'll get insight into the moments which shaped the team's recent journeys. If you're interested in leadership in general, you'll pick up plenty of examples. Please be sure to rate and review this podcast with those five stars to help others discover it and enjoy it just like you're about to do. This is the first episode of Kicking Back, a podcast by The Equalizer. What's up, everybody? Jeff Kasouf here in Jersey City, just over the river from New York City, with two-time World Cup champion coach Jill Ellis. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeff. Great to be here. It's awesome. How's that, how's that feel? To uh, You're still getting used to... It's been a while now for, yeah. for the second one, so kind of getting used to that intro. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's obviously, it's not a bad handle to have, but yeah, um, but yeah I mean, obviously I'm uh, kind of doing some different things and been, still been on the road a ton, you know, doing a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you, you've been traveling more now, would you say, <laughs> than when you were actually um, coaching? Yeah, I mean, obviously I have still have the role in the Federation and yeah. that's, um, you know, like I was in Wisconsin, I've been in Kansas City, just different areas, um, speaking to coaches, doing some coaching education, doing mm-hmm. some fundraising for you know, they created a scholarship, which is which is fantastic to help raise money for, you know, female coaches to mm-hmm. to really you know supplement or you know pay for their coaching education, which has been great. I've done some you know um, other speaking to corporations and such, which yeah. which has actually been cool because you you're so siloed when you're in sport, you're very you know you're obviously head down, you're into it, but you realize just how much sport can kind of you know just transcend and go into other areas. And I've learned a lot about you know business world and. Um, technology, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So it's it's really been a kind of a, almost a growth period. Yeah, a bit of a rock tour type of thing, you know, like new city, new day. Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, you know, <laughs> you kind of yeah, sometimes. Um, but actually, you know, most people are you know they want to have conversations about you know um, mm-hmm. 
you know, obviously, you know, women using their voices to leadership, to mm. team building, those types of things. And what I really enjoy is rather than talking at people, as I like to have, you know, a conversation and answer mm. questions. I think yeah. that's so real. Yeah. Well, let's let's do that. Let's All do right. some questions. Uh, um, well, I wanted to start with the what you've been up to recently, and, and you talked about that a little bit. And um, maybe we'll start with you know something you've probably been asked a ton that what's What's, are you itching to coach still at this point? Are you like, everybody asks you what's next? Are you kind of in the moment? Or Yeah, I mean, I'm still, you know, obviously I'm still really busy, so yeah. I haven't really thought beyond that. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think I've, um, it's still in my blood, I think, you know, yeah. to, to be connected to soccer and I love the game and still, you know, watching it and looking at it. Um, but in terms of, you know, specifics, yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of in that pause period, I think, mm. you know, um, I'll stay with the Federation through kind of the summer and then kind of explore what's out there and what's next. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I you know, you, you kind of miss it. You know certain things about it. Um, you know, I was doing this thing and I was up at my father. My father runs um, soccer in his little, in his town where he lives. <laughs> and there was a young girls team came out and, you know, worked with them for like 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, no, teaching's teaching and you kind right. of, you kind of miss that. Yeah. And what, um, I like how you handled some of the questions that you were getting in the fall about would you go do this or that? And, and you kind of responded like there's this assumption that going to the men's game would be a step right. up when you said something to the tune of, that's probably not the case. I mean, yeah, you just financially. Coached, <laughs> well, be. yeah, maybe that one. Yeah. Um, what, so, I mean, what, what kind of would be even like, how do you find the next challenge after coaching the best team in the world? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I was, I was on the bus one time with, with, um, with Tony, my assistant, and uh, we were talking about, you know, taking what we've learned and taking the, you know, the, the journey that we've been on and, and do you take that to another team? And he kind of looked at me and he told me, he goes, but we've just got to remember you're only good at, as good as your talent, you know, meaning you can have a lot of, um, you know, high-level thoughts and ideas, but it's gotta, you've got to pair it and make it relative to, obviously, your team and, and the players that you have. But, you know, in essence, I think, and I've sort of said this, I think when you're a coach, it's, it's you're, you're a facilitator, right, in terms mm -hmm. of trying to help people achieve goals or help get people on the same page or help share information. So I think regardless of, of what platform you go into, that's kind of the basis of it. But, you know, I mean, I think going through the pro license really made me realize mm -hmm. that the game is the game, you know. And so what I mean by that is certainly if you go into it, if I were to go into MLS, you have to learn um, – you know, the, the parameters of the transfer market mm -hmm. and all the salaries and how everything's yeah. put together, which you can learn. But when you come down to it, it's player management. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I did through the pro license, one of the things that was just struck me was in there, we were certainly, we talked about style of play and tactics and all these things. But what it came down to was the stuff you don't learn in a book or you don't see on television. It's mm -hmm. those big decisions that you have to make. You know, how do you... How do you manage a player that's on the back end of their career that considers themselves still a starter? Or how do you manage a new young player coming in and how do you, how do you bleed them into the team? And so those are the things that I think we had the most in-depth conversations about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the pro license is something I did want to ask you about. So I have heard secondhand through the years, I never got to ask you. So you were the only woman in that room. Um, I want to ask you what that was like for you I don't know if that's something you even thought about or um, I guess we'll start there I mean, yeah. what, what well the first it was it was interesting because you know I decided I mean and I I'm a big proponent of coaching education because mm -hmm. it's like does having a license make you a great coach no but going and putting yourself through an education process mm -hmm. you're always going to learn something or share something 
So when the Federation said, you know, would you be interested in doing this? I'm like, oh, absolutely. Well, then literally within probably like two months of saying yes, they came back and said, our first meeting's in January and we'd like you to present. Mm -hmm. And Bruce Arena was going to present. And as the current sitting head coach, we'd like you to present. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, here I am about to take this course and now, you know, present to these guys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first thing I'm like, man, I better nail this. You know, it was my right. very first intro to these guys. So I, you know, I now presented on, on sort of a journey and leadership, et cetera, et cetera, and, and how we put, put the team together. And it was actually the best thing that could have happened because it suddenly, you know, you go in there from really not being, mm -hmm. you know, you're a coach, but obviously they don't know you and, yeah. you know, they probably see the game as different to there were so many relatable things in that, in that presentation and conversation mm -hmm. that instantly there was um, a connection, you know, mm -hmm. and it was kind of like all pretenses were off. We just then became coaches sitting in a room. Yeah. And um, yeah, initially it was kind of, it was interesting, but as I said, you know, as we, as the, the course unfolded, you know, it was fascinating to sit and talk to, to mm. Jesse Marsh about yeah. the philosophy of, you know, the, the, the Red Bulls and how they play and how they, how they find talent and talent to fit their needs. And mm. it was, you know, those things are just incredibly interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, Greg Vanny, I mean, I, he just, you know, he's an extraordinary guy and mm. just, um, you know, very well well spoken in terms of you know how he explains his style of play how he mm -hmm. the roles and, and profiles of players so it was brilliant i loved yeah. it yeah i want what, what i wanted to ask you too is i mean i'd heard kind of secondhand through the years that there were did everybody have to present someone yes. someone told me that people came away from it saying jill had the best presentation I don't know if you had heard that from anybody. Um, well, um, they, well, the instructors kept that. They've been asking me back every year. Like, I just went and spoke to the pro course, gosh, a what, not too long ago. I can't mm -hmm. remember exactly when. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're, you can tell when people kind of, you know, see you just for who you are in terms mm -hmm. of connecting with you. And then, you know, when people come and ask you questions, you kind of know then there's a sort of a, there's definitely a connection and there's a, Engaged, a mutual respect, yeah. yeah, in terms of what you do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was fascinating. So I've been back. I mean, I think, you know, this is what I kind of, I said to the, to the coaches, when you go through it, you're, you sit very often so, you know, alone and mm -hmm. isolated and, and it's rare air to sit there as a professional coach of, you know, teams that to suddenly be in an environment where you have essentially a fraternity of people that you can bounce ideas off. You know, I'm mm -hmm. still in touch with a lot of them yeah. from that course. Uh, it was incredibly valuable. I was going to ask you, I mean, you know, Jesse Marsh obviously now playing Champions League. Yeah. Um, what, is there a bit of communication still in terms of that group? And um, Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Greg and Brian, you know, going mm -hmm. and playing each other in the, in the final, you know, texting them, wishing them all the best, those mm -hmm. types of things. But yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just very interested in, in these guys and what they do. And I thought, you know, Jesse's decision, yeah, it was, I told him, I was like, it's, you know, incredibly um, bold and brave. Yeah. And obviously he had a plan. But, you know, to see him, you know, having the success he's doing and, you know, you, you, you do understand that still in the world of soccer, the American coach is viewed slightly differently. And so yeah. anybody that's going out there and kind of trailblazing, you know, like, um, so Bob Bradley came and spoke to the course as well. And mm -hmm. these coaches that have been able to put themselves out there and go and, um, you know, cut their teeth in international football. Um, yeah, I tip my hat to them. It's brilliant. Yeah. And you talked about coaching mentorship. Um, FIFA had set up a program couple years ago, I think, at this point. Yes. Um, yeah. You were mentoring Monica Vergara, who yeah. is the Mexico U-20 coach. They just qualified this year for the U-20 World Cup. Yeah. Um, what was that like? I mean, to, can you walk me through kind of that, yeah, that it was, process? You know, it was actually a phenomenal program. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, definitely credit 
um, FIFA. You know, they want to obviously grow the game. But so basically, what they did is they took, they brought in, I think it was about twenty coaches from the female game, uh, men and women. So uh, Corinne from France was there, Serena um, uh, Saku from Japan, and Evan Pellerud. Like, so they brought all these coaches in, and then they assigned you a mentee, and we went through an entire year in the program. Mm -hmm. So at times, you know, like I flew down to Mexico City, uh, went to oh. a training camp. Okay. You know, sitting there, and it's you know, it's all about sharing ideas. You don't, mm -hmm. you don't, you don't sort of put up barriers. It's really about trying to help people. And you know, kind of one of the things I've said is if if you can, you sit on so much experience that if you can share that and tap into that and help someone else's path, uh, that's a tremendous gift. So, went down, um, would speak regularly with Monica. You know, obviously it was a World Cup year, so it was tough for her to kind of come in with us. Mm -hmm. But, you know, went down there and, and followed her games. And, you know, even during her World Cup, um, mm -hmm. when she was with the under-17s at the time, was texting with her. And it's, it is such a, it's such a good program. Not only are you sharing information, but you come out on the backside of that with a person. And we kind of had almost like a graduation at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And just you could see just the love in the room and the connection that the mentee and the mentor had that this was gonna go beyond a one-year program. Mm. That Monica, you know, to this day, I know I still text with her, and um, she knows that if she has a question, she can reach out, and mm. um, I just, yeah, I think it's just an incredibly powerful um, program that I think the, the federate, you know, FIFA would like the uh, the confederations to kind of right. embrace that program. Right. I think it's, um, you know, going through it, when I was a young coach, you, you really struggle to find right. mentee, mentors. It's um, Especially people that are doing what you do and that are female. So. Yeah, yeah. Who who are you looking to these days in terms of coaching? I mean, I think I know you've talked about your dad probably being the the coach in right. your your early years and yeah. kind of shaping you. Um, and you know, I mean, in terms of present day, you talked about some of the, the guys from the pro course that you keep in touch with. Yeah. Um, are there people that you you know, even through that World Cup, the past couple of years that you've kind of kept in touch with and bounced ideas off and, and maybe respect even more so than others? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, because I think part of it's just your maturity. You know, you what you realize, you can, you can be fierce competitors on game day, but then you can have, build these relationships. So, yeah. um, you know, I've gotten to know Serena of Eadman quite well. Um, the, you know, we've had conversations, uh, the, the Portuguese coach, um, mm. you know, him and I have had conversations about the game. You know, Liverpool was a team, in truth, the men's team that we, you know, that we, you know, I looked at how they defended and looked at how they flattened out their midfield. And it was funny because at the FIFA Best Awards, I, you know, Klopp obviously won. And I remember we, we were sat and chatting together and I said, um, you know, I said, I'm a Man U fan, but I took, <laughs> I took a lot away, you know, from, you know, your style in terms of how you implemented certain things and strategies, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he's got this magnetic smile and he right. just kind of smiled at me, he goes, but now you're a Liverpool fan, yes. <laughs> I kind of was like, well, but you know, I, again, I mean, he, you know, he took and kind of modernized um, certain elements in terms of mm. how they played. And there was a certain DNA similarity to mm. his team and how they played that you, you acknowledge and recognize in our own players. Mm. So that was a team that, you know, we certainly looked at. Um, you know, when we went and looked at different defending shapes, you know, we, we looked, you know, even, even to the, we looked at, you know, different teams, Juventus, this kind of thing. But, even with, you know, you take a, a Man City and you look at a team that's so committed to playing out, but then also have that, that club in their bag that if they want to play over pressure. Mm -hmm. So we looked at that. And part of, you know, when you're presenting stuff to your players is you want to show, um, 
just the diversity of ideas that are out there and that we mm. can have different ideas and, and sometimes you can reinforce that by showing it hey look at this team how they utilize this or that we call them ins inspiration clips when we would okay. show clips either whether it's from the men's game or the women's game but mm. if it was people outside of ourselves we would say look here's some inspiration and, yeah um, you know I love, tony took a lot of stuff um in flank combination play from from certain teams and mm -hmm. showed that to the players. And it, what what else uh, were there? So there were women's teams that you were look at too. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, you just look at different. I think sometimes even when you're preparing, um, so you know, Portugal defend out of a diamond, mm -hmm. and they're very very good at it. Yeah. And so you want to look at what are the elements in that? You know, in terms of how they're their decision-making, when to press the outside back, when to mm -hmm. stay connected in, when do they release that midfielder, and when they do, how do they cover the width of the field on the weak side? Like, certain elements um, with different shapes and systems, and, you know, some coaches really have, have, have mastered specific, um, you know, shape, system, mm -hmm. so you look at the elements within that to, yeah. to kind of take away. I mean, one of the things that we, you know, we noticed a lot kind of in preparation for the World Cup was the amount of teams that, you know, was zonal marking. There was zonal marking tendencies. It wasn't pure zone like we played. It mm -hmm. was there was marking tendencies when, especially when they would press. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think you always have to be alert and open to, to seeing different ideas. Yeah. What what did that look like? The the zonal marking. The uh... um, well, a lot of teams play the four two three one, but in the press they basically would. Um, you know, because ultimately when you you play a game, if if you're zonal marking, you you look at elements where. Where is there a 2v1? Well, if you're marking, it's invariably going to be the two center backs with a nine or your mm -hmm. nine against the two. Like, that's the one right. spot in the field where, you know, you obviously there'll be a number up. And how do, you, how do you look at that? So, for example, you know, when you're pressing, do you then push on, because obviously give and take, do you then push on to both the center backs? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we played England a couple of years ago, and, you know, they literally matched up our back four with their with their front four. Well, at some point, then you've got to recognize where is that 2v1 and how do you take advantage of that? Mm -hmm. So when teams push onto you, they push into your into your midfielders and they, you know, they push on, I'm using my hands a lot here, but I don't <laughs> can see it. <laughs> but um, when you push on like that, then you sort of say, okay, well, they've matched up here. Yeah. Now where can we exploit that? Well, now they're suddenly, you know, we've got a, you know, a 2v1 situation here. So, yeah. um, but yeah, you you know when there's marking elements, you you have to then look at, um, you know, how do you best break down that? Well, mm -hmm. when there's marking elements, there's got to be a certain amount of creating a numbers up situation. So you know, engaging a player. So instead of just passing, you've got to now engage a player to create a numbers up. Then you find the open player. Yeah. Um, it's it's that it's creating that counter movement to create separation. So you can mm -hmm. you know almost lose your opponent for a split second. Yeah. Um, you know, the positional structures have to be very, very good when you're dealing with zonal uh, yeah. marking teams. Yeah. You mentioned uh, talking to Klopp there. So still a Man United fan. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> for, for life since, since childhood? Oh, that... yeah. I mean, I think, you know, well, I, li I grew up close to Portsmouth. So Pompey okay. was kind of my local team. Okay. But my big brother, you know, I was a little girl. Big, my big brother was a Man U fan. And so, you know, invariably I watched. It's back in the day of Lou Macari, Stevie Koppel. Mm -hmm. Team, people probably never heard of them, but these <laughs> older players, and you know, when you watch the team over and over, you mm. kind of just kind of plus they were pretty damn good, so right, right. Um, that was kind of the team I grew up watching in terms yeah. of you know, being a fan. And you, in the sort of at least you know, more recent coaching phase, um, probably the bulk of your coaching phase, that would be Sir Alex in charge there. I imagine he was someone that you looked at and kind oh, of yeah, took from for sure. I mean, you know, this is because I think you know, one of the things that I've um, 
that you realize as you go through this that the more fluid an environment, meaning if something becomes very static, mm-hmm. it um, invariably certain elements creep in. You know, there's a complacency or there's this. But when, but what was amazing about him is he always created a fluid environment, meaning even when he was his most successful, he was changing things or he was selling a player or bringing a player in. So there was always this input-output kind of environment right. that made it fluid. Um, you know, and I think that was one of the things where, you know, respectfully, and I, I've gotten to know, you know, Mauricio Pochettino. Just, mm-hmm. we trained there, we got to right. know him, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, one of the things that I think what was tough for him at the end was he had an environment that he couldn't release players mm-hmm. and he couldn't bring new players in. And now, you know, I remember him telling me, he's like, Jill, I have 11 defenders. I'm like, well, why the hell do you have 11 defenders? And he's like, exactly. Because, you, know, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's powers that be, people, you know, obviously the board, the, the yeah. man, that actually sometimes make those decisions. And then it's, um, but, you know, invariably, if you have an environment that's very status quo, mm-hmm. that's why a college team is always a new team. You know, you graduate right. seniors, freshmen come in. It's, every team is a different team. Mm-hmm. But when you have a national team or even a club team, if you stay consistent for too long, I think there's it becomes problematic. Yeah, and that so that relationship kind of popped up out of the the London training camp ahead of France. Yeah, we got and got to know each know each other there. You know, went and spent time in his office, and then um, I was in gosh, where was I? I was in London. I went, I went to a I think a Tottenham game, and you know, met with him again for his yeah. office for a few hours, and. Um, I mean, just an you know an incredible person, but yeah. a phenomenal coach. And yeah, I'm sure he'll land somewhere. Yeah, really impressive. Kind of a small world type of thing. Then, Do right? great For, things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I saw him at the at the FIFA Best Awards. And so. yeah, well, I want to ask you, going through 2019, sort of after the fact, um, you mentioned that you know you mentioned when you stepped down that you kind of knew December, January, six, yeah. seven months that you knew that was probably what you were going to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's that like sort of going through those months? You, I imagine you didn't tell anybody outside of yeah. immediate family or nobody on the team. What, what's that like kind of knowing that yourself? And I mean, it's, it, you know, people think, oh gosh, it, it, like it wasn't even in the back of my mind. I yeah. mean, because when you're so, you're so consumed in the moment that it was, you know, and in truth, it's first of all, five and a half years actually as a national team coach is probably one of the longer periods, you know, mm-hmm. and, there was kind of a multitude of reasons, um, but it never it never was something that, you know, as you're going through it, did I, I think the only time that I really sort of suddenly reflected was actually right after the final mm-hmm. in, in uh, Lyon. It was that moment of, okay, just, just take this in right now, pause and take this in, because, you know, as a coach, you're always looking at what's the next game, what's the next game, and, you know, I think I was... At that moment, knowing that this would be my last time with this team, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a world championship, I, I really specifically did try and just, you know, sit there and just kind of soak it in to that moment. But but in the in the in the build up and the lead up, I mean, it's just every decision, every you know moment, you're just constantly uh, refining, assessing, evaluating, you know. So it wasn't it wasn't something that was really in, the, in my forefront of my head. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was. You know, and I think I am someone, you know, I probably could have stayed at UCLA, that I was just, I, I do enjoy different things and different experiences. I couldn't imagine doing a job for 20 years, mm-hmm. the same job. So it was something that, you know, I've had this experience. I've been privileged to have coaching three world, uh, th- two World Cups and three Olympics. I was ready to kind of do something different. Yeah, yeah, and still kind of figuring out what the different is, right? Is that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, again, I think like, you know, 
I think what, as you get older, you kind of learn more about what you, you know, when you're young, you just kind of plow through things. But I think as you get older, you kind of realize, what is it that I value? What is it that I enjoy? Mm-hmm. And I would have to say, you know, just growth and learning is something that I've, you know, when I was in college, I, I didn't even have time to really look at the, the trends in the game that much because it's, you know, you're there mm-hmm. and you've got 30 odd players, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you're dealing with them always year round. When I was in the national team job, it, there were moments, and especially because you're looking at opponents, where you're able to learn more about the game and, and spend more time analyzing the game. And so that that growth, even in that position, was was massive. So I've really enjoyed just learning about new things. And yeah, you know, I mean, I'm learning about you know artificial intel- intelligence and <laughs> you know things that I've just you know met some amazing people that have shared some amazing things with me. Yeah, getting into the tech world a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. Which was actually where I started way back when. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I was a tech writer in my first job. Oh, that was the, the when you tell the story of the job that yeah, would yeah, have paid a bunch more. Job, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I promised that I would try to ask something different. I'm sure you... Yeah. One thing you probably don't miss is sitting up at the press conference table and yeah. <laughs> getting, a, getting a bunch of ridiculous questions. And Was there ever like a question or a topic that you just like... Is this really it again? Because I, on my side, even of like being oh, yeah. in it, I was like, I would stand in, you know, I mean, respect to all, no, co- no. but we like, especially going through a World Cup where you're in it every day, and it's like we're on day ten of asking about this guy. It's like, well, it's it's either that or it's the person that hasn't read any of your quotes before and mm-hmm. ask a question that you've answered like freaking yeah. ten times. <laughs> you're like, okay, uh, like I said before, you know, you yeah. kind of go back to that. Um, and I think when you're in Europe, you know, during the World Cup, I mean, a lot of times they, you know, it's their first time. But mm-hmm. um, you know, I, you know, I think the, yeah, I mean, obviously the the older questions about you know your team and your team's arrogant, this, this these kind uh, of yeah. things. You know, there's yeah. only so many times you can say, yeah, no, um, yeah, you know, this is what it is, and blah blah blah. But yeah, I think some questions you just, but then you just, you know, you be respectful because right. they're doing their job, and I get it. Well, you got you you talked about sort of removing yourself from that a lot. Did you ever, were you ever reading stuff? Did you have to like, no, actually, nothing, no. nothing at all. I, you know, and I think the, I think one of the biggest challenges I had with, with my team and with my staff was I just, I mean, my, we, finally my staff and I, we met and we're like, we got to put our computers away. Like because you become obsessed mm-hmm. about looking at things and analyzing things and breaking things down and. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be prepared for those meetings because I think visuals are so powerful to show your players. So you, you know, my games would be would be clipped and edited, but then you want to watch it because you want to see it through your lens. So I think the the reality is you just I didn't have time to worry about what anyone else kind of right. was writing or thinking. Um, you know, I think I said to my press officers, "There's something I need to know. Let me know." But right. the reality was, um, you just you know you're so locked on. Yeah. And, you know, you get it because it's, it's like this is why these conversations are cool because mm. you can ask kind of more behind-the-scenes stuff, mm. but people only see what they see, and so right. then they can only ask what they see. Yeah, it's tough from, from our perspective exactly. even because, um, like, I like to go down to training camp, just went down there, and it's a little bit better to just – we still basically get 15 minutes to watch stretching, right. but, you know, right. I mean, 95% of what's going on is really in training, and then uh-huh. if you don't know what's going on in training, you're left to say, well, why is that player exactly. starting or – Um, and then but so it's kind of a a chicken and egg type of you know if if you don't have the kind of regular access and you know you you don't get the knowledge to it so um, yeah just curious because I think the 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 team is certainly especially after 2019 is like I think sort of universally beloved and followed and um, I thought 2015 World Cup there were just all these different elements that was the most like contentious sort of 
team media vibe those kind of 30 days I don't know if you felt that just there were three four things going on and it was like you know it it just it was the only time I've seen that kind of dynamic and that's where I don't know that's why I was curious too if like if anything in the sense of an us and them media and team well I mean I think I think the media I mean I was in the group it was like it was the team there was a perception that the team was struggling a little bit in the group stage and then there was just kind of like a trying to drill down on that as a topic and obviously from a team perspective you're like no we're fine yeah um so that was interesting from from this side I don't know yeah I mean you know you you um I mean, you just again, you kind of you kind of view what you have in front of you, yeah. and, and certainly it was, you know, I think we went into that World Cup, um, you know, it was, I mean, Alex was not even close to being healthy, right? Um, so now you're kind of making things, you know, sort of work and click, and you know, it was, it was definitely a, and this is what's crazy is I think if you actually look at World Cups historically, I would say 19 is probably the smoothest ride any team in any World Cup men and mm-hmm. women's has ever had. That in truth, the normalcy is probably 2015, where teams struggle or, you know, they start warm and get hot or they, you know, start hot and get cold or they lose a game or, you know, so I think, or they pick up injuries or suspensions. So it's almost like I think, you know, my experiences are is the World Cup is never as smooth as actually 2019 was. Um, And I think that, that, you know, that's going into the 2015 World Cup. You know, one of the things we kept saying is we are winning and finding ways to win, but we're not at our best. And mm-hmm. then you, you put it all together, and the final is a blowout, and it's the largest success, you know, largest margin in any World Cup. So, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a, you know, there's not a, a magic formula, um, but I certainly think in 2015 it was a it was a process of, you know, it was my first World Cup, and it is definitely a learning process in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, I think one of the things people don't realize is the the most challenging decisions are substitutions, lineups, like pl- the, the process within the game in terms mm-hmm. of how you're going to either change the game, start the game. Like most people don't think, like we had con- long conversations about how do we want to finish a game? Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are things that you kind of go through. And I think when um, when we went into 2015, it was definitely a process of, you know, figuring out as we go kind of thing in that kind of sense. And yeah. so... Did it look kind of uh, hot and cold? Potentially, um, you know, Abby's role was you know whatever we needed it to be, and she executed it perfectly. So uh, it was definitely, I think, in part. And I, you know, I go back and I reflect on this now. I don't think a coach. I mean, from qualifying to the World Cup, we probably had I don't know what it was like eight months, baby. Mm-hmm. But I don't think a coach now can come in last minute and kind of look at it like Australia, yeah, and not have a longer period of time. To really be prepared for a world event, right. I think it's it's going to be rare now that a coach, they hire a coach in you know six months, seven months out, and they're going to win, um, because I just think that whole process of building things in, um, I think that's what I took away from 2015 to be more prepared, to have more tools in the toolbox, yeah. to have more, you know, for example, where do you want the final pass to come from in the last five minutes of a game? Most people go, well, last five minutes of the game, we just want to play more direct. No, no, specifically, where do you want that final pass to come from? Mm-hmm. Like, that was the ability in 2019 to look at that whole other level of preparation. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of that's learning. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you some of these, uh, yeah. get into some of the coaching cool. uh, elements. Um, 15, I mean, you mentioned, I think it's kind of universally looked at. There, there's that turning point in that quarterfinal. Um, Cheney 
Lauren Holiday, um, Megan Rapino suspended for the yellow card from yep. the Columbia game. Carly pushes higher. Um, and then the insertion there, there's a couple of little changes, but the thing that seemed to unlock that was you chose Morgan Bryan yep. as that middle piece to join in the center of the park. Um, and at that time, I don't want to say unproven, but very young yeah. player, not as much experience. Um, what is that? Can you walk me through that decision yeah. of those pieces and how you knew that was yeah. how to go? Well, it was, I think initially it's kind of like, you know, again, because um, if you remember, sort of Alex was pretty banged up coming in. So we knew, we initially didn't think we would have her to the quarters, like not even play a minute. So we, I think we used her a little bit early and we were kind of fading her in. And um, it was kind of that, you know, where are the goals going to come from? Well, Carly had been, you know, pine in the back of the net and um, and so the natural thing I remember talking to my staff and I said let's push her higher let's get her closer to the goal mm -hmm. let's kind of get her out of build up and get her you know basically we call it scene two but basically in front of their back line faced up um, so it was kind of you know you kind of go with a hot hand so Carly was scoring goals I think the other thing is we, we felt is that we wanted to be um, you know to have a player of, of Morgan Bryan's profile that can suddenly doesn't have to, if she's got pressure on her back, she doesn't always have to play backwards. She can solve the pressure and now we can, you know, much like a Rose Lavelle can do, if you can yeah. solve pressure and play forward. Whereas I think, you know, our other midfielders were more comfortable when a ball was coming in. You know, Carly's not gonna turn, she's gonna sort of lay it off and then get it back higher. So it was trying to bring in a player or look at a player that could make us a little bit more secure in our build up, but also could now create a numbers up situation by suddenly solving pressure and playing forward. Mm -hmm. So it was a kind of a combination of her skill set pushing Carly higher because she had the hot hand in terms of scoring goals. Um, you know, Carly in the box is, is lethal in the air. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, you know, or, you know, where does she score a lot of her goals from top of the box pace, you know, pace and power kind of in terms of the shot. So it was really about getting her higher. And I remember at, at training, I think it was like the two days before the, the, um, the, the game I remember sort of telling Abby I said like, you know we're going to push Carly up kind of more in a 10 higher role and Abby was like oh that's awesome you know she was so excited um, and it's not floating out there to get validation but it's just it's making yeah. sure you know as a coach you want your messaging to kind of get out there to your leadership in mm -hmm. terms of so suddenly people aren't going what the hell are we doing right. um, so we pushed her up higher and yeah we, it worked out and then obviously Morgan got the experience mm -hmm. in that game played incredibly well um, and then we were able to have Cheney in a role that allowed her more freedom of not just being a lower player that helps in build up but a player that we can get forward because she obviously has a tremendous shot from distance as yeah. well yeah I think one of the more annoying narratives even from my end I, it has to I know you didn't read much but it had to be for you for was that the suspensions forced the change but being there with the team that was a change that you were making Right. I mean, certainly necessity is the mother of invention. Right. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't disagree with that. But it was certainly we had had conversations yeah. about, you know, you know. I mean, Alex, for for for, for as, as hurt as she was in that World Cup, she caused a lot of problems that we got goals from, or we got a penalty mm -hmm. kick from, or we got free kicks from. Um, but in terms of actually scoring goals, that was kind of our biggest issue. Like, right. who is who's got the hot hand? I mean, it's um, so no, we'd had conversations about pushing Lloyd higher yeah um, and giving Cheney a more freer role mm -hmm. in terms of you know between the two midfielders you know if Lloyd was so you know and I think the other thing is when you when you have a when you have a player that quote wants to have a lot of touches on the ball 
suddenly now you've got both your centimeters coming low and now you don't have enough you know attacking profile Mm -hmm. higher because now both of your midfielders are lower instead of you know them working off each other Mm -hmm. and i think what we felt with 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 holiday and with cheney and um with mo is both of them could come low and both of them could fade high Mm-hmm. So it, it gave us, I think, a better balance. Yeah, and you mentioned in-game decisions. Um, one of them, I think, a semifinal against Germany, produced one of your famous quotes from 2015 when you wanted Kelly off the bench. Right. Yeah. Um, the, what was, uh, you know, yeah. that, that I, I don't know if you want to repeat it. Oh, yeah, it Kelly doesn't mind. She loves it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, so the, the thing I think people is, you know, when the, when the starters play a match, or a lot of minutes, so the next day they're in recovery and then you take the, the you know, the, the game changes out. And what I, I went to all of those trainings. You know, sometimes the head coach doesn't go, but I went to them. And what impressed me so much was Kelly was just relentless in his mm-hmm. practices. Here was someone that wasn't playing, that was giving absolutely everything in practice. And it just struck me as, you know, she's, she's primed and ready. Mm-hmm. So when we get in the Germany game, um, and Pino was, you know, fading a little bit, and um, Tony was like, yeah, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I see it, I see it. And we knew we needed to make a change. I mean, and really the decision was whether we went with press or, um, or with Kelly. And again, it's like, what tool do you bring off the bench for what purpose? And I just turned to Tony and I was like, yeah, we need a bitch. We just get Kelly. Like, we, the, you know, when you had to put a game away and it, it was that, we, you know, we just know she's going to just, she's going to two-foot her grandmother to get the ball. So <laughs> Kelly's just, you know, she's going to leave, leave it all out there. So went with Kelly and then obviously came in and had an immediate impact in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was one of those decisions. But in large part, it was, it was a great message to players that what you do in training Mm-hmm. Even when you think nobody's watching, even when you think you're not a starter, it can impact uh, a coach's decision. So I didn't know that. The head coach doesn't always go to the sort of regeneration. Uh, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, right, but sometimes, right. yeah. I mean, because, you know, you're either preparing stuff or, you know, and it's usually a lighter session or it's a more, it's a smaller group. Mm-hmm. But it was always something I, you know, I wanted to go to. One, you want to send a message that, hey, you guys are important. But yeah. two, you're kind of looking for what tool do you need? Yeah. And I was just talking to Carly um last week about that 2015 final and and obviously the goal that I think will forever be the famous one is the shot from midfield that um, probably one of the most famous goals ever really Um, but the the first one I asked her about because that one when you watch back maybe from a coaching perspective um, it's sort of a perfectly executed set piece that she's coming off the top of the box basically unmarked hits it first time um, I can embed a clip or something, maybe where we put this. But yep. um, the, you know, what was that like for you to see that kind of come off? And I mean, it was, you know, actually. So people ask you, you know, you know, how do you when you work? So there, we use three D animation to. Okay. So, so here's the thing. So when you when you drop a set piece and you put it on a board or something, and it's two D, you got to remember nowadays that the players, younger players today, they see everything, you know, with video games and stuff. So we found this software. Um, I'll give it to you, but we found this software that we could, we could animate a set piece. And what was so great about it is they could see their runs, they could see their picks, they could see, you know, even on the defending set pieces, the difference mm-hmm. between a player straddling the white line on top on the six or having their foot outside the white, you know, like that level of detail our players mm-hmm. wanted. Well, when you show it in 3D animation, then they watch it, you can kind of drill into it. So that set piece, we actually, I think we, we showed it to them a bit in video. I think we sent it out to them on their phones. They, we trained it once, I think in training. And that was the first, I mean, that was the, the first goal. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was absolutely drawn up. She was a late run, come from the top right. of the box. You know, players ran ahead, kind of opened up the space. 
perfectly served delivery from Pinot. Um, so yeah, it was, I mean, you know, I'll, this is what I said to my, to my coaches, and I said this to the players, at the end of the day, World Cups are won in 18, so you've you got to be really good defending them, and, and obviously set pieces are a massive part of that. Mm-hmm. So even going into 19, we actually went and looked back about the number of minutes, because we tracked everything, the number of minutes we spent in set piece preparation because we were really good in 15 on our set pieces. Mm-hmm. And so we actually, we realized we were behind, so we amped it up going into 90 in terms of set piece training. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, at times it's monotonous, it's detail, right. but the player's focus was amazing. So, so that, that set piece was only just trained before the final, you're saying? Yeah. Okay, wow. Well, there you go, first uh, yeah, first pretty, time, first, cool. uh, first goal. So I, I got the sense through the years too, you're very much into looking at the data on players. Um, Yes, I mean, for sure, like when you take the, you know, when you start to unpack things, I mean, I think, you know, what data can do, it can be a great tool to help sell a message, it can, you know, reinforce information. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it the be all and end all? No, because you definitely have to trust your gut. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like sometimes, you know, I would take all the, all the data from the league, because you want to say, is there something I'm missing that my eyes aren't, aren't, aren't telling me? So sometimes mm-hmm. you kind of look, I remember looking one year and I was like, and you know you have everything from their physical data to you know their their statistics, and I remember seeing that this player. I'm like, oh my god, this was the fastest player in the league, and I I don't even remember this player. <laughs> and then you kind of look at it, and you're like, okay, well that makes sense. You know, kind of in terms of they can have this, but then obviously how they play and their influence mm. in the game is important. But um, yeah, I mean, I very much you know I don't want to just know, you know, two center backs in our opponents, um, you know, like to play long. I want to know which foot do they play, who's their target they want to play to, because you want to nullify or negate things, but then you also want to strengthen things in your own team. Yeah, yeah. Well, in 2015 we're talking about, and then 2019 as well, both of those years you open in France with a, a loss. Um, what, you know, I got the sense last year, 2019, that you were kind of holding some cards back, is that fair? I mean, the, from the lineup decision to you, I mean, um, not in truth, because actually no. they were legit. So, well, we did our preseason there, mm-hmm. and in truth, if players were healthy, I would have played them. Okay. But we came out of that that preseason. This was the first time we'd ever done preseason in Europe. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to play, and so invariably, when you go through that kind of two and a, two plus weeks of a grind, you know, we picked up some you know muscle muscle issues. So no, actually, people were like, oh, did you not start? And I'm like, no, I mean, the Pina was hurt, and I, okay. know, I think Kelly was hurt, or maybe, I don't remember who didn't play. Um, but no, they were like, it wasn't worth the risk, you know, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, we played, we played obviously the, the players that were healthy. Yeah. So it, I know it kind of, you know, kind of looked that way coming out of yeah. it, but, you know, ultimately, I think you, you, this is what you come to realize as a coach, there aren't any secrets in the game. Mm-hmm. Everything, you know, I can, we can pull up penalty kick from a from a player opening in a, a mall in France you know to see I mean like the, everything's out there now right? right so you you just it's more about learning what you need to get better at or strengthen or than it is I mean those two games France and Spain I pushed hard to get because I felt like we had to get all of our answers um, and actually the biggest reason I wanted to play in France was like a player like Rose Lavelle she'd never played in front of 18,000 fans that weren't cheering for her right Opponents so it, you know it was a lot of different boxes to check but 
um, yeah, it just kind of worked out that way. That we, yeah. didn't, we didn't have some starters out there. Yeah, that one sounded specific. A, a mall in France with Pete Cape. Is that, <laughs> that a part of the scouting report? I mean, we, <laughs> yeah, we, we were pretty thorough. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that France game in particular in 2019, I think, is a good one to. Everybody had that circled, and that's why I kind of, I think, myself included, people assumed yeah. that that January France game, as much as folks on my side of the table were asking you about it before you got there and you had to kind of say, we got to get there first. Everybody knew from that draw that that was the game. Um, You go into that, you know, obviously a huge result. Uh, Wanted to kind of talk some of the specifics, but I guess starting just with the approach to that game, Mm -hmm. even mentally knowing that it was kind of looming. um, And and maybe the place to start actually is, is the Spain game that had to get you there. Um, I think maybe the Spain game in that journey is overlooked. I don't know if you feel that way, that that was a tough physical game. Um, There was the the one giveaway that the goal conceded. Um, That was almost maybe the toughest game in that whole stretch. For sure. I mean, well, I would would agree. And here's the thing I would say. Had we not played Spain in the early part of the year, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we beat Spain. Because, and why I say that is it's one thing to look at a team on video but it's another, team to, another thing to feel you know, their strengths and their qualities. And we'd never had a history, we'd never played Spain. So I think it would have been hard for our players to not have an appreciation and understanding you know, the, the, their strengths, their qualities in terms of that. Um, and I think actually the Spain game in the end of January, it gave us, um, it gave me a lot of answers. You know, I, I built, obviously did a lot, most of the defending and it gave me a lot of answers that if we're not pressing, we're playing a highly technical team. They are good enough to manipulate situations to execute with their, you know, precision of their passing that we can be exploited, you know. Um, and Spain's quality on the ball, if we weren't pressing their center backs, we give them time and space, they can pick you apart. And their mm-hmm. positional structures are so good. So we learned a lot from that. Um, I think what surprised me, I actually said this to the coach, um, it, it, this FIFA thing, what surprised me in that game is in, in when we played them in Spain, they actually came out and sat high on us and pressed us. When we played them in the World Cup, they sat off of us. I actually think that benefited us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he said to me, he said to me, he's like, what do you expect? You know, you guys were coming out on fire. First 10 minutes you're scoring goals, so they didn't want to get opened up right away. Mm-hmm. But I think what it allowed us to do was have a little, you know, more of the ball. And with that, get you know you gain the confidence in, in, in terms of that. But I certainly was surprised by how physical they were. Yeah. Um, you know that kind of I was like, that was uh, you know you, again the, you know I think that especially the the pressure from behind was just massive. And we yeah. talked about going into that game that it you know you know it's coming. So the importance of having we always talk about support under the ball. So if it's going into nine, can the eight and ten or the, or the seven eleven come under in support? You know if mm-hmm. it goes into six, where are the centre backs? So every Every line, every positional has to have built-in support underneath. Um, but I think that was one of the things I think we talked about at halftime, just making sure we were better in terms of having that ability to lay off the ball. Yeah. But I think the game itself, um, you know, you're, you know, it, it, people sort of say it, it was a hot day. Uh, right. you, you're playing with a lot less break. You know, people Very didn't really hot. realize that, you know, you're playing with two or three days less rest than some of these teams as mm-hmm. you're going through. That's a massive, you know. Um, I mean, people wouldn't think, oh, you go and play a Champions League game, and one key team comes in three days more rest. People are like that's not fair, and 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 I won't say it's fair, but just the reality of that is a massive part of 
um, your preparation is right. knowing that you know physically you have to have your your your, your subs, substitutes you know on point. So it was it was a really um, big game for us, and um, yeah, I mean I think they are talk about an ebb and flow of a game. Spain is a team when they start to get a hold of the game, it is hard to wrestle that back, mm. and that's where I think we spent a lot of time building in strategies that when those moments came, how were we going to respond? And oftentimes that was a decision from the bench in terms of adjusting or adapting or going into a different shape or press sitting higher on the line or dropping off or whatever. Different tools to be able to change that. But going back to the to the beginning of your question, talking about France, is what we decided to do, Jeff, was that we looked we were very specific in the opponents we, we chose to play. And what we did when we got into Tottenham before our pre-camp is we said we're not gonna train or prepare for one specific opponent. We gave the team a presentation on our World Cup opponent. And what we did is, so instead of looking at France's qualities or Germany or, or, or mm -hmm. Sweden, we looked at all the, basically all the similarities that they had and we presented that. So that when we realized that when we would go in, regardless of who, who we played, we could pull up the information and the players had already absorbed it and they'd seen mm -hmm. it. So what do I mean by that is all of our opponents play with a back four. So we right. talked about, you know, both from the attacking and defending standpoint, dealing with a back four. Teams play with double pivots invariably. Mm -hmm. How do we defend that? How do we manipulate that? So we looked at, you know, most teams were playing a variation of a 4-2-3-1, a, a 4-3-3, and if they were playing a 4-4-2, were the forwards stacked or were they side by side? So we looked at all these similar things. We looked at transition. When teams transition, there's two ways all these top teams transitioned. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how we nullify and negate and manage that. So it was very much a slightly different approach than looking at each specific opponent. We, mm -hmm. we took a big picture view of, here's our World Cup team opponent, let's make sure. So when we went through each game, we just pulled the things that we needed. Yeah, and trying to think of some big sort of tactical things that happened in that World Cup. So one of the things that I think from that France game that was really um, super interesting that, that ended up happening in the next few games was Going to a back five around the 70th minute, it felt kind of early sitting there in, in Paris to do that. Corinne Diak, French coach afterwards, said, I've never seen the U.S. do that. Right. Is that a compliment to you? Um, well, I mean, here's, the thing. <laughs> well, here's what I'd say. is Actually, if you go back and you look at England and she believes, we went to a back five. This is, this is what people's perception is. People think a back five incredibly defensive. And yes, it can be. Mm -hmm. But we actually, against England and she believes, we went to a back five. And do you know why? Because when you rotate, you're actually building in a three-back. Mm -hmm. And it actually we actually scored a goal when we went to a, a back five. But, but when you're in your attacking shape, because people think shape, they think only defending, right? Mm -hmm. and, and in truth, when you build in a back five, when you back, technically you're rotating your outside backs. It's a slightly different rotation. You rotate to a 3-2 mm -hmm. than a 2-3, meaning our outside back's going up and in and gives us three, and it's two center backs. So... Yeah. Um, we've and we actually did it many many times in games where we were ahead and why did we do it because we wanted to train it and, and when you train it you do it in situations where you don't necessarily need to do it because then the players understand that this is a tool that if we need to do it we can right. so we'd actually done it a lot um, you know in games even when we'd won 5-0 I remember the friendlies yeah yeah um, so it was there and then the other thing that we going back to the Spain game you know as I said to you when we realized that we were if you're not pressing, sitting in a flat 4-3-3, you don't cover the width of the field. So coming out of the Spain game in early, early February, late January, we'd actually 
used different, we called them pressing traps. So we, we looked at dropping our nine, which is what we did against France. So we sagged our nine so mm. we could force play central. So we're not sitting flat there. We looked at playing out of a 4-1-4-1 in a certain shape. So we basically had added this flexibility to our, to our setup. Because I think, you know, if, if a coach is, um, I say stubborn, it, you know, you look at any coach, you look at Guardiola, you look at Klopp, any coach is at times going to be adaptive. You have to be in, in the modern game. You have to problem solve. Guardiola says after 10 minutes, he'll look at his game plan and then he'll know, you know what, I need to do this or adjust this or whatever. So we decided to kind of build in some more flexibility. Um, going to the back five so so in the France game initially what we did is we looked at France and we said well where's France's strengths their flanks I mean they are phenomenal on their flanks so by dropping Alex and sitting higher with our seven and elevens where are we funneling play down our gut mm -hmm. trying to eliminate them getting wide mm -hmm. so you know there's always these you know processes and thoughts in terms of how you do and that was a pressing trap we we built in um, to go to a back five it's um, Here's the reality. When you're playing away from home, 55,000 French fans, you know, we talked to the team about there was games that's going to ebb and flow. And you have to manage when you don't have the momentum. And those are what we told the team. So we will have tools to manage that. Well, if a team's chasing the game and they're desperate, they're going to start lumping balls, get it wide, get it in, get it wide, get it in. Mm -hmm. So actually a back five allows us is to actually be more aggressive so people think it's a defending thing, but it actually allows your outside backs to be more aggressive to rotate out early, yeah. to stop the cross. That's the initial what you want to do. Then, JJ's the best aerial presence in the, in the world, dropping her into a back line. If the cross comes off, we're now safe and strong in our central mm -hmm. area. But it still allowed us in transition. It's such an easy shape to then rotate back into, whereas your 7-11s are now pushing high, you're staying high with your nine as your outlet. Yeah. And you're immediately back into your shape. So, again, people only look at it on a defensive side. Yeah. But it's, you know, a, a, a system or a shape. Listen, at the end of the day, you can play whatever freaking shape you want. <laughs> if, you're, if you're mobile and flexible within the shape, a 4-4-2 could... You know, when we were in the Olympics, we played a 4-4-2. But actually, we built in a back three by rotating this way. Mm -hmm. So it actually looked like a 3-5-2. A you know, I think people get hung up on that, but you know, at the end of the day, for us, it was we knew we had to kind of, you know, um, strengthen our, our flank space um, mm -hmm. and make sure that we were still good in transition. Well, and one of the the shapes that I think we got held up on on a media and fan side, 2017, late 16 in the 17, the three back. Yep. Um, I think I can't remember exactly. Well, it was the She Believes Cup after yep. that that basically yep. ended that with. Yeah. Um, I think France kind of exposed it, would you say? I mean, sure. what, that shape, um, I guess the brief version, because it was obviously a big process, but deciding to go to it, um, the personnel you wanted, and then knowing, maybe after that France game, but knowing when and why and how yeah. it's not going to work, and, and I'm not going to spend two years on this to build to the World Cup. What, when did that yeah, how I mean, did that happen? Well, so, yeah, I mean, and part of part of that, and this was the honestly the messaging to the players, is we won't particularly ha have, a, have a lot of depth in the back. So, and, you know, then let's play with, you know, more numbers central. Um, so looking at a 3-5-2, it was something that we, you know, and how you play the two and how you play the five, you know, in terms of what that looks like, you can obviously manipulate them a bunch of different ways. 
But the reality was, yeah, I wanted to. I actually think when you, if you look at a lot of teams, when they play against a, a, a front two that are flat, it's much easier to build in a three than mm-hmm. it is against, because um, otherwise most teams push their outside backs high and you almost end up 2v2, right? right? Because it's the two center backs dealing with the two forwards and then the six. And invariably, you know, the two forwards work very hard at cutting off the pass to the six. So um, building out of a back three creates a problem for the opponent because now it's like two two forwards. How can they get pressure on and you create right. numbers and essentially you build a 4v2 mm-hmm. with your six included. So I was intrigued by that to help us build more successfully. But then you got to look at obviously the defending part. So it's, it's give and take. But one of the things I actually did in that period is actually dropped Ali Long down. Why? Because she's an exquisite passer. And if you want to be a team that's really comfortable building and comfortable with pressure, having a player that's very comfortable having players close to them and not getting flustered by it was part of you know why I looked at playing her down there. Um, but then the takeaway from that is you, you know, you don't have the pace to deal with the transition, which obviously France took advantage of. So, you know, everything you do when you're working through a process is you're looking at the positives and the minuses, and that's what I think as a coach you have to do. Because on the back side of it, what you come out with is you go, okay, that's an area that's you know that's we definitely have to strengthen. We can't live with this. We have to adapt. So it was a great process for us to come through. And, you know, the reality is, I get it, the media has to have something to write about. <laughs> so, you know, oh, why are they playing a back three? And, right. you know, respectfully, if they truly understood, they mm-hmm. would know that this is part of a bigger process. Yeah. And that was the, the whole messaging. You know, we took some, we took some, I mean, France did something that they had a new coach. And what France did in that game is they actually matched up man to man on our back line. Mm-hmm. So here we are, we're all we're talking about is building out, building out, building out. And now we're man on man in, in the back. And that and now our players are going, okay, this is this is tough. And again, right. talk about building in solutions. Then it made me look at that and go, okay, so when a team does just go and put a player on all of our backs and our six, we now have to be able to play over pressure. And where do we want to play and who do we want getting the ball? Mm-hmm. So everything you do get, gets answers from. As shitty as it is, <laughs> you know, getting some tough losses and... and yeah. um, you know, and failing, mm-hmm. I, it's truly how you get better. Yeah, and that process came out of the 2016 Olympics, which was a bigger, for sure. Um, I don't want to use the term rebuild; it gets a little bit cliche. But yeah. I mean, you went 60 players was the final number, I think, from 2016 Olympics to when you left in terms of number of players you brought into camp to look at. Obviously, all part of that that process. Um, I guess the 16 Olympics, and I don't, I don't mean this at all as like an explaining yourself type of thing, but oh, a, it's fine. <laughs> no, but but asking from a, I think the perspective there for people who aren't sort of in the trenches of, yeah. I mean, even what you're explaining with the formations and the systems that, you know, like even thinking about a, a five back offensively is probably not something that, you know, comes to mind immediately. So, um, 16, you know, I think everybody looks at the Pino sort of yeah. selection and and how to bring her along. Um, you obviously thought. Right, she was good enough to give you 30 minutes maybe. Yeah. and then I mean, listen, at the end of the day, it's her set-piece delivery. Right. You win a World Cup, you know, by having exquisite delivery. And when mm-hmm. you have Cheney and Pino, yeah. two are probably the best dead ball specialists in the world. So suddenly, you know, Cheney retires, <clears throat> Pino's hurt. Mm-hmm. Late in a game, if you can have the quality of service that we've, you know, seen and know, it's, you know, it's, I think it's arguably the best in the world. Yeah. You're willing to take that gamble. In my opinion, had there been another player that would have 
been better than that option, yeah, you'd probably take it. Mm. But I thought, you know, um, you know, where she was, her and I talked about it. You know, we knew, I knew it was a big ask. Yeah. But, you know, you're kind of like, you're willing to take that gamble. And that's, you know, mm. that, I think always as a leader, as, you know, someone in charge, at the end of the day, you have to be comfortable with the decisions that don't work out. Right. And own, you know, and being like, okay, well, I made that decision. Yeah, it didn't work out. But I probably would have made the same decision. Yeah. You know, I think the, the reality was in you know in that in the Sweden game was to put her in and then have to take her out, you know that's on me. That's mm-hmm. that's not you know it was probably too early to insert her, mm-hmm. but we were you know you you kind of go through that and you're obviously desperate to get a result and a set piece and we had, we had phenomenal aerial presence on that team, mm-hmm. um, so that was probably you know obviously the decision that was you know an error on my part in terms of using utilizing her too early. But yeah, it was a gamble to to just have the the, the quality of, of the the serve. When you got a fourth sub in, in extra time, there that was I think yep. the first time that rule exactly. was, was yep. used. So, um, do you do you look back on anything? I mean, it sounds like you're a no regrets type of person. I mean, are there decisions you look at as big decisions, bigger than others? I mean, every decision at that level is pretty big. But um, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, like I think if I think back to that Sweden game specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, I mean, failure is opportunity, right? I mean, I'm like, I hate to be the classic optimist, <laughs> but it is, and it's feedback. And, you know, what I realized in that game was the need for us to have a central player of a profile that can, you know, I almost think sometimes turning is a lost art in our game now. You know, mm-hmm. very rarely do you see a forward just absolutely just spin someone. Mm-hmm. The defending's gotten better, athletics, I get all that. But, but to have a midfielder that can suddenly <clears throat> turn in a tight space, we didn't have that profile. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the feedbacks I got. You know, The other thing was I think I was, I came out of that going, we've got to be positionally more disciplined. You go out and you watch a kid's practice and you play a possession activity and you're playing you know, eight versus three in a, in a grid, right? You're gonna have eight players checking to the ball. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very common you know what you're trying to now have is players that can read off of each other and recognize you know when someone's checking i got to fade away or i can i can stand still i don't have to move you know blah 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 so when when we when i looked at that game positionally you know our players some of our players weren't committed to being in the spaces that we wanted them to be in and when that happens you you cuz all the positional stuff is about creating leverage well suddenly if you've got no players in front of the back line. Mm-hmm. A back line's going to sit there and go, this is easy. <laughs> or if you've got no width, a back line's going to go, this is easy. Right. And we weren't disciplined enough. And that's, you know, that's on me in terms of reinforcing it, demanding it. That I think when we came out of that, I think if you look at our positional structuring, once we started to come through our experimental phase of looking at everybody and you know, trying different things, we were much more disciplined in mm-hmm. our setting our expectation for that. We have to have width. Then once you get the discipline, then you can actually build in. Now, how else can we rotate and get the same thing you mm-hmm. know, in terms of that? But if you look back at, at the 2016 game against Sweden, there were very times we were very narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, you know, we talk a lot about countermeasures. So, for example, countermeasure is when we have the ball, what do we look like in our defending? Mm-hmm. And at times we weren't. You know, is disciplined in our countermeasures. You know, were we pushed into this player? Did we have numbers covered? So there was so much feedback from that game. Yeah. But you know, I think the positional discipline was probably the biggest one. Yeah. Um, so 
we could probably talk forever about specific sort of moments yeah. and tactical and, and you've I mean we're even only touching on sort of your US tenure I mean you've got U20s and UCLA and right. everything before um, but I won't we could probably talk for many hours and I won't do that to you here um, I, I want to ask you kind of a couple more more general uh, maybe to the team and then the, the kind of wider soccer world um, you know essentially having 23 starters at least for a World Cup roster probably a pool of who knows how many players who think they should be in it. Yep. Um, the, the personnel management um, is probably as big as anything. Yep. Is that a fair way to say it, I guess? And, and how do you, you know, especially at a World Cup, people think they should be starting. People think yep. they should have minutes. People think they've trained well. Um, not unique to sure. this team, but maybe the most heightened by this team because of how good it is. Um, well, I think you kind of, you, you know, I mean, certainly when you go through that process and you deepen the pool like we did, you then obviously, you know, you create that situation, right? right? Now you've got, <laughs> you know, you've got 23 players. Right. And, but, you know, I think, um, so starting big picture initially, I think when you, you know, I sort of, I would say I looked at it in two phases. I looked at this development period where we could basically you blow up the hierarchy, meaning you leave star players off of rosters or you don't play them because you're making room to look and facilitate others right mm -hmm. you go through that period but as you get closer to a world event you have to go into a performance phase and that's where you have to have a hierarchy and when you when you start to get closer because when you get into a world event you cannot have any gray areas where people are going oh what's my role uh and then you then the, the chatter starts <laughs> like i should be this you know so very, you know, I kind of made a decision to be as clear as possible. Now, does that sometimes get kind of skewed when you have injuries and you have to play a different player in the build-up? For sure. Mm -hmm. But the reality is going into the World Cup, you know, if you have people to say, who's your starting 11? Most people probably would say. And that's because you've, you've built in this sort of this continuity and you've set this expectation. That's important, I think, mm -hmm. for a coach when you go into that. The other piece of it is you have to make sure that every player feels like they are valued, feels that they are um, getting the information. So even at times where we might train, you know, we might take the starting 11 down and do set pieces, we would then flip and the other group, the, the game chase, would get the exact information in the exact mm -hmm. amount of time. So there was never this, they got more time or they got this in terms of the information yeah. we were getting. So now you have 23 players that all know what this set piece should look like, or you know, what do we do when we're pressing in a in a four one four one, etc. So that's important. But then the whole value piece is, you know, it's it's all about how you shape the narrative. Now I'll credit the players. I mean, incredibly professional. They understand the whole concept. Mission matters most. But calling our reserves game changers. It's it's important because they're not subs, bench warmers. They are mm -hmm. people that come in and there's value because they're going to change the game. Like I've said to you, most people. Americans get hung up in the starting 11. There were mm -hmm. many times where I'd say, how do I want to finish this game? Yeah. It, and because that's as important, if not more important. Um, and then before every, when we would review each game the next day, instead of showing you know, the goals initially, I would show the bench celebrating. Mm -hmm. Because again, it sends messages to the starters. Look at how excited your teammates are. It sends messages, look at how valued. and. That's important, I think, to try and have everybody feel um, valued. The other thing is, you know, when you have a player that, you know, um, that potentially is not happy with their role, I get that. But for me, I can always sleep at night knowing if I'm doing what's best for the team. Mm -hmm. 
it's not personal. It's like this is what I believe is the best decision for the team. And when you when you sort of meet with a player, it's like, listen, you can say I don't agree with this or whatever. The only thing I'm going to expect is that you execute the role that you've been given. Mm -hmm. So as simple as this, if a player's hurt, they better be getting themselves down to the training room. Right. Because that's their responsibility. If a player is a, a game changer, they better be pushing to try and be in that starting 11. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, people get hung up on how are they feeling. It's To me, it's not a matter of how they're feeling. Are they doing, are they being professional? Mm -hmm. But internally, if you're... If you're one of the front three, all of them should want to be the right. the stud that scores the most goals. You know, yeah. I mean, we all talk about facilitating and assisting, but at the end of the day, if you're a forward, you want to score goals. Mm -hmm. And and that's you know that as a coach, as a, as a leader, as a manager, you're okay with people not loving their role, mm -hmm. but they better embrace it and execute their right. role. Um, so I think those are a lot of the things. I think listen, when I have conversations, what I've tried to lead with is truthfulness and empathy right and so what I mean by that is like I don't candy coat stuff in the reality is I can say to a player you might go out and you might be you might improve 10% in what I've asked you to improve upon but I still might pick this player because mm -hmm. that's just the nature of sport and that's the decision that I get to make yeah um, and I think when you're in that world like people sort of say how do you make tough decisions like it's part of what the world is mm -hmm. in, in sport so you're constantly making these decisions and then, you know, you try and do it from a pace of, you know, not being obnoxious or rude about it. You understand, I right. mean, it's hard to cut a player. Yeah. Um, but again, your, your kind of, your guiding principle is, is this best for the team? So I think that's kind of how you go through it. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think the players are, they do. I mean, is everybody going to be everybody's best friend? No. But is mm -hmm. there going to be a mutual respect and understanding that we need everybody to be successful? For sure. Mm -hmm. Um I think people think a women's team should be like this kumbaya. We sit around with marshmallows <laughs> and guitars and, you know, we're kind of like that. But no, it's it's uber competitive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there, there are trainings where, yeah, a player gets after it with another player. Yeah. Um, mm. But that's a good thing. That's why they don't let us in trainings. For <laughs> Probably. <laughs> they they yeah. don't want that on camera. Um, I want to end this with kind of something wider. Um, just looking at trends around the world of um, kind of back to what you're watching, maybe from, from other coaches. But um, we were talking how tactics can be kind of cyclical and it's it's kind of a big circle and, and we're in this era of um i'd say kind of broadly that 433 is kind four, of in, two, three, one, yeah, yeah i mean the, the variants of it that are really what the best teams are playing um where do you think we're going maybe it doesn't have to be women's game specific men's women's um, club international i mean where are we kind of headed and what's do you see something sort of on the horizon that's going to flip that is it I think, well, it's, it's interesting because first of all, I look at like, you know, as, from a coach, you look at like, okay, what kind of player do I need to, for the future, right? right? And there's two things for me. I mean, the, the, the tactical astuteness of a player, I think, has got to, you know, has got to continue to evolve. Why do I say that is because you look at teams and they might play, you know, this way, this style, this system in the first half or even in the middle of the park. And then in the final third, I mean, you know, Australia's a team that will play one way high, defend high one way, and in their back will play a different way. At least, they, you know, they've done that historically over time. So you have to have a player that can truly um, recognize just the different scenarios. And ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, you're attacking. It's like, where's the space? Where's the ball? Where's my teammates? Like, it's, it's very simple to say it like that. Yeah. But having players that can read instinctually and do that and don't need to be spoon-fed, 
that's the type of players you need. Um, you know, and I think we are still very overstructured in this country in how we teach. You know, you look at games, you you all watch kid games, and everybody's telling everybody what to do. Yeah, that's an area I think we've got to evolve in terms of the game. I mean, listen, the athleticism you see it in the men's game. It you mm-hmm. know from thirty years ago to now, the same with the women. It's now you're going to have teams, and with athleticism means how does that influence the game? It's like spaces are smaller, people are closing fast, so. The decision making has to be quicker. The, the technical ability and proficiency has to be better. Mm-hmm. So all those things are going to continue to improve in terms of big picture. Um, in terms of specifics to trending, you know, I think it's, again, it's like most times people say we're playing this shape. This is what always cracks me up when you <laughs> when you put out when people put out the starting eleven. Mm-hmm. I would say to my press officer, do they want the defen- defensive shape or the attacking shape? Right? Because mm-hmm. people just naturally think it's the same. It's yeah. not. And so I think, you know, now you're seeing a trend. I think seeing now more teams going back to actually a 4-4-2 defensively mm-hmm. because, you know, if you play a three front and you're defending, one pass eliminates three players. Right. You play two central, now you can steer the player, in, steer the ball into wide areas. So now, so I've actually seen, you know, some of the top teams now going back into defensively a 4-4-2. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in terms of where the game is, is heading, I mean, I just think everything is going to have to have a, happen at a, at a higher level. Um, I think still the... I don't think what's going to change is still trying to create numerical superiority central is something mm-hmm. that uh, is going to stay with us. Now, how do teams do that? I mean, I think that's what people have to understand now is the manipulation of a shape can give you exactly what you want. So you can, you can be in a back four, but you can build in the back three like we did for a while where we'd rotate Dunny high, Pina would come in, mm-hmm. and our eight would drop down, and now we're in a three-two, meaning we've got a back three, and we're playing with double pivots because okay. our eight would drop in alongside our six. Mm-hmm. Then at times we were building where we would keep our back four nice and low and narrow and connected. Well, why did we do that? Because we wanted to pull the midfielders. If you keep your back, your outside backs low, mm-hmm. most people push on their outside back, but what they're essentially doing is they're actually taking the wide players of the opponent and taking them onto the back line. Mm-hmm. So if you sit with your outside backs low, now mm-hmm. you're pulling those players, now you're creating space. We did that a lot. Why? Because we wanted space for Lavelle, Mewis, and Horan to operate. Mm-hmm. So when we sat low with our outside backs and, and more narrow, yeah. So my point being is the manipulation of what you want is kind of the trend mm-hmm. in terms of how you want it to look. Um, you know, people talk a lot about creating numerical superiority and blah blah blah. Yeah, it's but it's all about how you want to you know sort of manipulate it. I yeah. mean, you know, Holland um, they dropped Minima down lower against us, mm-hmm. and how did we adapt? We actually dropped JJ a little lower, but then we pinched in a player to to give us two in there to build. So you know, I, I it's you know it's really Again, for me, it's it's a it's a simple game. We com- we complicate it at times, but <laughs> you know, when you're attacking, you're really about manipulating your opponent in the space, yeah. um, and that and that, that's the beauty of our sport. It's yeah. like it happens in a multitude of ways. Yeah, and that probably serves as a, a bigger answer to a lot of specific lineup questions I could ask. And yeah, I'd probably and, go, and I'm I'd probably answering go, those because that's, no, that's probably, the stuff yeah. that you know. Like I love I love talking about the why. Mm-hmm. You know, people so. Um, Hiran and Mewis. Right, that was what, actually what I was thinking people, of when you were talking about People would that. say, you know, why one over the other? They're both phenomenal. Mm-hmm. They're both fantastic players. Um, you know, but they have a slightly different profile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're... So, you know, what Mewis's profile is, is she creates separation. Mm-hmm. 
She's going to pick up a ball. And now if she can create that space, she's going to run a back line and likes to shoot from distance. Mm -hmm. So if a back line is, is sitting off you, she's someone that's incredibly threatening to run at back line. Lindsay, you saw it not too long ago in the game. She likes, she'll final pass from the top of the 18. Mm -hmm. A phenomenal skill, but it's a slightly different profile. Well, sometimes as a coach, you look at, you say, what does the game need on this, in this moment? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and if a team is going to be, you know, why Lavelle is interesting is because, again, it doesn't matter how organized a team can be. She suddenly changes the game by being able to face. Well, Mewis, by suddenly, if she accelerates and runs out of back line, what is she actually doing? She's creating numbers up. Mm -hmm. And um, Lindsay's going to be a player that's going to, create the final with her passing she's trying to but you're not actually creating another number you're just playing an exquisite pass mm -hmm. so it's all about kind of what does your opponent present that you think you can manipulate and what what tool do you think can best help yeah um you know and that's kind of where i you know i went i mean i feel like lavelle and Ertz and mewis mewis is kind of a hybrid of these two meaning she can run at a back line but she can also destroy mm -hmm. and cover ground yeah the swiss army knife <laughs> Um, you know, and I think Lindsay is, you know, uh, just a, a, a player that just has a phenomenal touch and vision. Um, mm -hmm. But if a team is sitting very low and very compact, sometimes you need someone to kind of create that numbers up situation. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's fascinating to, to get into some of the, uh, the nitty gritty of yeah. line. It's, I wish we could do that in the moment. And then we'd, we'd have better questions for you in the post game too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we it's, were, you know, uh, like people ask, yeah. you know, like, like I think what's always fascinating when I look at our, look at other teams, I know we're kind of running on here, but yes, no, it's is you look at what profile do you want in your nine? So Pia actually went to a four, three, three way back in the day. And, you know, Abby was her nine. Well, when you've got a player that's um, lethal in the box in the air, you don't really want her fading out wide. Mm -hmm. You want to keep her central. But, but then if you, if you have players that are central that are not threatening behind, then it's very easy for a team to keep them in front of you. So, you know, my profile, my preferred pro profile in a nine was to have a nine that would have pace to threaten the back line. Why? Because when I've got Heath and Rapino uh, who want the ball at their feet, if we can threaten the back line and have them drop off to try and create that space, mm that obviously benefits them. So it's all about how the pieces work together when you build a team. Like, yeah. you know, a lot of coaches like three three profiles all the same of a player. I think having the diversity means regardless of what a team puts at you, you have a you have an ability to manipulate them. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's it's you know it's interesting. It's interesting with Canada right now. You know they play it's where do you where do you play Sinclair? You mm -hmm. know, if your player is the highest player, then who's threatening the line? Then mm -hmm. maybe it's your wide players that have to do that. So it's kinda of how Portland has, has managed for through the, the exactly, past few years. Exactly. So, um, well, Jill, thank you for uh, for taking the time talking some tactics and personnel and um, hopefully a little bit different than yeah, no, the usual. Um, so Enjoy thank it. you for taking the time and uh, appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to Kicking Back, a podcast by The Equalizer. If you like what you heard, and we certainly hope you did, please go ahead and rate and review this pod. The more you do that, the easier it is for other people to discover this show and hear compelling stories from some of the most interesting people in women's soccer. Keep an eye out for our next episode when we kick it with our latest guest.